Okay. All right. So today we have the honor of hosting Martine Kalau on the Immigrant Square podcast. Uh, welcome, Martine. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you, Anna, for having me. I'm good. I'm Can great. you tell us a little bit about your journey to the United States? Uh, yes, we're going right into it. So um, I was born in Zambia. My family, my mother and father, my biological parents uh, were from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which was formerly Zaire. I came to the U.S. with my mother when I was four years old. We came on a visitor's visa because her siblings were all, they'd all immigrated to the U.S. pursuing the American dream. Um, I was the seventh of my mother's, I was the youngest of my mom's seven children. So she brought me over because I was a baby. Um, or I was young and, you know, toddler. Um, and then shortly thereafter coming to the U.S., um, my mom remarried my stepfather, who was American born citizen. Um, life was pretty good for, 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 I guess the first 12, you know, the first 12 years of my life. And then, um, things took a turn for the worse when my stepfather became ill and we had to, we moved from Maryland, which is where we, it's, there's a big, you know, immigrant enclave in Maryland. So um, yeah. that's where we lived. And then we moved to um, Columbus, Ohio, to be closer to his family. My stepfather died. And then um, it seemed like a year and a half later, my mother passed away. And so at that point, I went from being, you know, this person who had this nuclear family and felt like the everyday average American girl, you know, going to school and growing up in the U.S. to um, being coming undocumented. Um, at that time, I didn't even know it because my priority was surviving. I didn't have parents. I didn't have a home. It was a matter of where was I going to live. Um, so that's the real the story, like in short, how I what my immigration journey was. Um, and in the in the process or in the midst of becoming or you know being undocumented, um, I learned that I was also stateless. So. Um, Fast forward, I spent seven years in removal proceedings um, back in 2000, 2001. You know, removal proceedings didn't exist. That's a euphemism. I was in deportation proceedings, and that was a result of going to the Social Security Administration to adjust my Social Security status because I was in college and I needed a job. And um, myself and the college administrators just, you know, we had we were ignorant about the whole process and the status, I didn't know that what it really meant to have a non-working social security number and card. So we went to adjust my status so that I could work in the dean of faculty's office. And in that moment and in that instance, I was immediately placed in removal proceedings through the social security administration. And um, and that's when my my journey or I call it a battle ensued. It started back in 2000, 2001. And that's, if you recall, you know, historically, that's when 9-11 occurred. And um, people like me um, were demonized. The whole idea of the axis of evil and, you know, immigrants and Muslim immigrants were horrible people. So I was, so we had to keep a low profile. We, you know, as immigrants, we undocumented specifically keep a low profile. So there wasn't an ability to travel, to draw, you know, to, to even get to my, my hearings, right. To take a bus because they were doing immigration raids on these buses. Um, 
So I know I'm going on and on, but I'll I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up so that you can ask, ask your next next question. Um, and in the midst of all of that, this, this seven year journey, this battle, um, I went through six different attorneys. Uh, my case was sent to the Board of Immigration Appeals twice. Um, I, you know, many attorneys encouraged me to just get married like it was like some Hollywood glamorized movie where a marriage would just solve everything, which we all know at this point that it doesn't. Um, there are a lot of catch 22s in my immigration journey. Like, um, I had to go to these immigration hearings and I had to present ID, but I didn't have ID because I was undocumented. So it was like, hello. Um, I was paying taxes, have and always have been since the time I was 18 and was always honest when it said status. I put question mark because really I didn't know what my status was and what, where it was going to be. Then I found out that I was also not only uh, undocumented, but stateless because my birth country and my parents' uh, birth country would not accept me as a citizen. So I was undocumented. Um, I was I didn't have a I didn't have a home in Congo in Zambia or the U.S. And people like myself, stateless persons, um, are subject to being in detention facilities indefinitely uh, because there's no place to send them and they have very little legal recourse. So that is my story, essentially. And yes. First of all, I have complete goosebumps. I mean, this is really a traumatic experience for a young child at 12 to to have to go through and being undocumented in itself is so difficult in the U.S., but also being stateless is something not being able to go home and call the place a home is even worse. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, for the people who don't know the history there um, in that region of how that happened and why did you become stateless? Sure. And I, I appreciate you asking, Anna, because statelessness is something that um, I'm part of an organization called United Stateless, um, great organization. And one of the founders or co-founders um, puts it really nicely. I mean, I just love her analogy. This, you know, Karina, she always says, like, if being undocumented is being in prison, being stateless is like being in solitary confinement because there is very little, there's no recourse. Like you're just, you're like muffled. Your sounds are muffled because the laws, there are no laws in place for that. And becoming, it's so easy for anyone to be stateless. And there's so many ways that one can be stateless. For me, it was a matter of the governance changing for both of the my birth country as well as my parents' birth country and um, the citizenship rules. So, or my, my lack of knowledge or understanding. So in Zambia, which was my birth country, what it says, um, is, you know, according to the citizenship rules or laws is that if you're not, a, you know, if you haven't lived in Zambia by a certain age, um, or if you've been out of the country for an extended period of time, by the time you turn 18 or 21, I can't remember what the age limit is, um, you have to claim your citizenship. Otherwise it's revoked. So think about like when from the time I was 15, when my mother died and 13, when I, my stepfather died to the time I was in college and all that, I was just trying to survive. How would I even know that I, I didn't even know that I was undocumented? I didn't even understand what that meant, let alone to even figure out that I'm stateless. Right. So that's how I missed the mark and was excluded first from citizenship of Zambia. 
DR Congo, formerly Zaire, um, is a country that has been in war for over two, three decades. Uh, the country has been raped and pillaged by neighboring countries, by um, other countries across the globe because of its natural resources. People are suffering. And um, honestly, the governance has changed. So when when my mother and my birth father were, were in Zaire, it was called Zaire. The government changed. It went from Zaire to Democratic Republic Congo. So I would have, perhaps it had stayed the same country, the same name label, perhaps I could have adjusted my status on the, on the basis of my mother and father being Congolese or Zairean. But because it went from Zaire to Congo, I was no longer considered or I could not establish citizenship. So that's how I was stateless. And then in the U.S., which is the country I lived from the time I was four, um, did not recognize me as a citizen. So according to the U.N., um, you know, definition of statelessness, someone, you know, not having a, a home um, in any particular any any particular region or territory, just not not having a home, which is a, it's a human rights violation. And. Just for listeners who are probably wondering, well, like, is like, what, what does that mean to be stateless? There's so many ways that a person can become stateless if your governance, government, governance changes. Um, with climate change and people being displaced, that's another way. Um, if a country goes through some sort of civil war or something and it's dismantled and no longer exists, that's another way, you know, there are many Syrian and Palestinian stateless persons in the world. There are over 12 million stateless people. And according to the UNHCR, every 10 minutes, a stateless child is born. Right. And in the U.S., there are over I think it's now closer to 300,000 stateless persons who've actually, you know, that we've been able to, to, to document and track. And one last example that I think will really help people resonate with this is that, you know, you can lose some countries don't allow you to um, establish citizenship through birth. It's through your parents. And sometimes it's through your your it's like a paternal um, um verification or so right, right of citizenship based exactly. on your parents. Yeah. So, um, and then there are other countries uh, like Dominican Republic. That's a perfect example where, you know, recently the law has changed. They've adjusted a law, this very draconian law that's racist in, in nature that says, hey, if you're Haitian, if you're Haitian, Haitian descent, and you were born in Dominican Republic, so essentially a citizen of Dominican Republic, you are no longer a citizen of Dominican Republic, right? We, we, cause they're trying to, you know, whitewash Dominican Republic. So if, Anna, let's say you were of Haitian descent, you were born in Dominican Republic and your mother and father were born in Dominican Republic and their mother and father were born in Dominican Republic. Well, Dominican Republic says predating back to 1942, you're no longer Dominican. Well, you're also not Haitian cause you weren't born in Haiti. Neither were your parents or your grandparents. So guess what? Now you don't have a home in Dominican Republic. You don't have one in Haiti. And, you know, that's why we saw like those visceral images of Haitian migrants trying to flee and come to the U.S. because they have nowhere to go.
not all of them, but many of them. So these are the different ways that people can become stateless. And there's so many other examples um, that the United Stateless Organization um, really sort of expands on. I think it's really important to bring uh, attention to that because I interview a lot of, you know, immigrants, refugees, uh, children of immigrants on this podcast and different organizations. And I think people understand what it is to be, you know, a refugee, what it is to immigrate by force because of something that's happening in your country. But I don't think a lot of people are familiar with what it means to being stateless. So thank you so much for sharing that and sharing your story. And can you talk a little bit about what the organization does and how other people can get involved? Yes. So this is I'm a member of United Stateless. And, um, you know, it was very serendipitous that we all I connected with them. I was leading a, a discussion on, on um, you know, my story of homelessness um, at Johns Hopkins University. They happened to have heard about it. They showed up and it was like one of those instances where, you know, you you meet people that are just like you, like you've always felt weird and like out of place. And then you meet people who are just like you and you're like, oh, my gosh, that's there's like an unspoken understanding. And so um, what I love about United Stateless is that there's so much diversity in statelessness. Right. I mean, there isn't one look for statelessness, just like there isn't one right. look, one sound or anything for an, an undocumented immigrant or a refugee. Same for um, um, statelessness. United Stateless is, um, you know, I think you can go to the UnitedStateless.org website um, or USL.org and find them. And they are an organization where you can be an ally or if you're a stateless person or if you're undocumented, because many times what happens is we're undocumented and we don't know. We come to find out later on that, oh, we also are stateless. Right. Um, And that can happen. So. Um, all is, all are welcome to volunteer, to just join the conversations. Um, we are, you know, making strides in, in, uh, on the Hill, on Capitol Hill to, to try to affect change in legislation. Um, we want to educate attorneys, immigration attor- attorneys about what statelessness is and what it looks like and come up with some level of, you know, protocol, legal protocol to support stateless persons. Uh, because right now there isn't. Um, any and stateless people are more likely to be human trafficked because there's no legal recourse for them. There's right. no there are no laws written for people like what I was, right? And so uh we really just appreciate even if you go on the website just to watch a few reels about stories of different t- ways that people can become stateless. Um there are many stateless people who were born in Europe as well. I mean in Western Europe, um, that we wouldn't necessarily think you could become stateless. You could be stateless if you were born in Amsterdam. Well, there are cases of that, right? So, um, I encourage anyone listening, if you're, if you've never heard of this terminology, at least just go to the usl.org website to just learn a little bit more. Absolutely. And I will share it in the podcast notes. Can you, um, transitioning to your struggle, um, going through all this immigration process, to finally get to a resolution, what kept you going? Like, it is such a tough process on your own. It's such a young age. Yeah. What are some of the things that helped you to push through this? 
That's a great question that you're asking, Anna. And I wrote a book about my journey. Um, it's called Illegal Among Us, A Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship. Um, and I talk about putting, um, I, I really want to humanize that person, the person who's undocumented and stateless, because I felt like the media, from what I, what I see now, I mean, when I was going through it, there was nothing in the media. The only depiction was an illegal alien. That was it. There was no such thing as, you know, being undocumented and those types of euphemisms. But there was always like, it felt like there was, there was this dichotomy and, and it still is the media portrays. You're either superhuman or subhuman. You're superhuman, which means you're this like magna cum laude, you know, you're so brilliant. You're going to be a neuroscientist. And that is why you deserve to be in the United States as undocumented immigrant. And then, or you're subhuman, you're a menace to society, you're dangerous, and that's why we, you need to go get out, right? And then everything, the, most of us fall in the middle. I'm like, I'm not a genius. I'm hardworking. I have a lot, I think I have a lot to offer this country, but I'm certainly not a genius. So that's part of like the struggle that I experienced. And um, the experience was sort of like feeling like, you know, I don't, I don't exist in this space. Right. And so what kept me going was this desire to tell my story. So people knew that people like me exist in this space and we are human. We're good people. We have good intentions. We are in this situation because circumstances beyond our control. If my stepfather, my mother hadn't died and I became an orphan, this wouldn't have happened. Right. So that was part of it. The other in humanizing the undocumented immigrant and stateless person was um, my desire to kind of um, to give an introspective of the mental health component of this, um, because I don't think, again, when the media portrays us, we're just these objects, but we are we have feelings. And most times there's a whole nother story behind how we got to where we got to. And it's heavy and it's deep and it hurts so bad. And I needed to humanize myself, right, and people like myself. So that's what kept me going, which was I've got to tell my story. Even if, and I was pretty sure, Anna, to be honest with you, I was pretty sure I was going to end up in detention facility, and I was terrified because I knew that I wasn't going to survive it. I know what I can handle, and I knew that I personally would not handle it. There are so many human rights violations and atrocities that occur in these in these prisons, you know, for lack lack of better terms. And I just knew that I wasn't going to survive that. So I was pretty sure that I probably wasn't going to come out if I went in. And so my motivation was, let me fight as hard as I can. Let me write this story so someone will know. Like how humiliating and embarrassing for something like this to happen in America and the United States of America. That's what motivated me to keep going. And there were instances um, where my friends, because I wanted to quit all the time. I wanted to give up. I wanted to, if deportation were a place, I was willing to just give up and go because I didn't want to suffer the, the torment of going to court like every month and having a judge who had a reputation of terrorizing people like myself, who was 
removed from the Miami immigration court only to be re- take pushed you know a uh, position in the buffalo court to do the same thing to people like me it was so hard for me and i would have um i was diagnosed with ptsd from it right so i thought like let me you know i need to i need to um i need to tell i need to explain the story to others i need so that was my motivation that was one to the mental health component and in in offering an introspective and um you know the other thing that kept me going was like i said my friends um whom when i had those breakdowns when i wanted to give up when i wanted to just be deported but it wasn't that simple because where was i going to go Right. It was my Where are you going to go if you're deported? Right. There is no home. My friends who lifted me up, right? And I, I have to be honest about that because I, I am not a hero in the sense that I, I never gave up. I never wanted to give up. And I just, you know, I had all this courage. No, um, I think there's a lot of strength and sometimes not always having courage and being able to foster relationships and people and community that lift you up. And that's what I did. Um, I had a few friends because I was so afraid to tell even my friends. Um, I lived a double life. You know, I was Martine, who was going to school and trying to make sure that I stayed in school for as long as I could, because that provided me with a home and gave me shelter and education. But at the same time, um, you know, so I, I didn't tell a lot of my friends my story because they wouldn't understand it. But the few that knew, um, little segment of my story I would just say oh I'm going through immigration problems that's how I that's how I summarized it but they would keep me going right and that's that's how I got through this that's so important you're bringing up an excellent point that I'm seeing a theme come up in a lot of my interviews is the most important thing for immigrants is the community that pushes you and you know encourages you when you're low and having that support system and you are a hero. You went through so much. I think that nobody can do these things on their own, but it does take a lot of resilience and a lot of strength and uh, to, to push yourself to get up every day and just keep going to these courts and doing these things. And you didn't only succeed there, but you also are thriving in your career and you're giving back to that community, which I think is incredible. Telling your story, writing the book and telling others and humanizing this aspect and bringing attention to something that even I, who I, I dabble a lot in immigration and refugees and all that, did not know how powerful it is to be stateless and how problematic it is on the legal side. So I truly, truly want to thank you for for sharing that. Um, and I mean, also, it's such an inspiration because you took it and you built like your whole career on helping those people. So can you talk a little bit about what brought you to your career path and what you're doing today? Yes, I will try to be brief. So cut me off if I start going on a tangent. Anna, I love to talk about these things. I'm so impassioned. But throughout my journey, um, I experienced a lot, a lack of dignity, a loss of dignity. I think that's what this, the system, the immigration system, whether you're a refugee, whether you're stateless, what whether you're undocumented, whatever it is, um, you know, you're filing for an L1 visa, whatever. It's designed, in my opinion, it's sort of, it's designed for people to fail. So when you make it out, it's like, how did you do that? How did you successfully do that? 
And when in that process of failure, there's a lack of dignity that that's that like fuels the failure, right? It's the, the lack of dignity of having to go every couple of months to apply for a work authorization, not knowing if you're going to get it. You know, it's like your life is in the hands of whomever is in front of you and how they're feeling that day, how they woke up that morning, if they have an attitude, like it's just yeah. that trivial. So for me, um, I was, it was really important that a couple, I was able to do a couple of things, help other people to restore their dignity, right? And so when I mentor other people in this space, undocumented peoples, uh, what I tell them is, what I remind them is, like, you need a support group. Um, And you almost set it up like a company, a business, right? Um, In the sense that you have to have your team, your team, your legal team, and you have to advocate. Your, Your lawyer is not your savior. Your lawyer is your advocate, but you have to help them stay on track. You also have to understand where they are, understand how many their caseloads. And when you don't hear from them, like establish a way of communicating that's most effective. So that was really important. And that's some of the work that I do is helping to kind of liaise the language between lawyers and, you know, immigrants so to speak. So when you do this, then it means that, or when I don't hear from you, this is what it means. That helps to restore dignity. The other is helping uh, my community in identifying and being able to talk to somebody, a therapist, a counselor, someone who specializes in this work and being undocumented in the immigration experience. Um, that's so important for that mental health component. And then the third component is being able to find somebody, um, a support system to go with you when you meet with your lawyers, to go with you to your master calendar hearings, those types of things. So that, having that team, having that support helps to restore your dignity. So that was really important to me. And that's part of the work that I do. The other part of the work that I do is um it's twofold one is you know i recognize that as when i was telling my story and i wanted to appeal to the people that had power and influence to change things i didn't want them to have to 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 feel pity and to see me as a charity case i wanted them to invest in me so i wanted to have them see me as a contributing member of this community of this country and see the value that I could bring. And so the work that I do now is to be a build bridge builder between the people that have the power, the influence and those that don't have it, but they have the potential so that both sides can remember, remember that nobody is a charity case right? It's about investing in other people. So that's part of the work. And now that all falls into the work that I do now, like all those two segments that I mentioned falls into the work that I do around diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So I work with corporations and businesses, um, you know, that is like my bread and butter in terms of like work. But um, the way I got to this space of diversity, equity, inclusion is because I started way back when, when I was in college, looking at comparative analysis of the local 
Bosnian refugees and the Black Sudanese refugees, right, in the local upstate New York community. And I was looking to see if there was preferential treatment based on race, based on um, religion. Uh, the religion was pretty much the same. It was, you know, Muslim, but race and what that experience looked like for these two groups in terms of their ability to assimilate as refugees. And from that experience, I started to see that the way we look, the way we sound, even at, in this space of being undocumented or stateless, can influence, right, how we maneuver or how we are allowed to maneuver through the space. And I'm full, I'm fully, I want to admit that because when I, I remember the first time I went public with my story, um, my, my, you know, I went, I spoke at the late Senator John McCain's rally on immigration. And then my, you know, my story was out in the newspapers and local newspaper in New York. And I remember my friend saying, you're going to be okay because you're a woman, you're non-threatening. People are going to feel like they're going to feel compassion for you because I was terrified of people not feeling compassion. And he was speaking from the perspective of a black man who was Muslim, who was undocumented. And I also had another friend who was Middle Eastern, who was also undocumented, who still isn't documented and was Muslim as well. There's both of these individuals are undocumented. So I also recognize the privilege that I have that we all carry in the, the, the bodies that we're in. And so that's why I do the work that I do around diversity, equity, inclusion, because I'm able to see how it falls and how um, immigration is a subset of DEI, as well as other spaces. So I do the DEI work in the immigration space, and I also do it in the space of, you know, for-profit corporate entities as well. That's incredible. You're doing so much. What is your, um, I guess, advice uh, for people who might be going through similar process and what is something that you would like others, outsiders to know that could help them help somebody who is stateless and undocumented or one or the other? I'll start with outsiders. I would say outsiders, you're not outsiders. You're invited in. That's one of the reasons I wrote I wrote my, my story, my memoirs, because I wanted everyone to be able to connect to the immigrant story. Because we we all are connected. If it's if if you know it's not even six degrees of separation at this point. If we really think and reflect and we recognize that that person, that undocumented immigrant, that stateless person can look like anyone, can sound like anyone, can come from anywhere, then what we should consider is that we may not be that far removed from someone who's going through this kind of experience. And that person is going through that experience, went through other circumstances that led to this. Similar to us, we all go through circumstances, right? And so if we're able to remember that we are we're not that far removed from that person. We can see ourselves. We can understand them. We can understand where they might be coming from, their journey a little bit more as it relates to our journey and the parallels. That's all we need to do. Like, that's the first step, right, is to recognize that you may not. The goal is not to understand all the nuances and the, this huge immigration ecosystem and understand the differentiation between 
what a stateless person is, what an undocumented person is, but just to understand and recognize that we might not be that far removed from that, right? So that's the first thing that I encourage anyone and everyone to consider and that everyone who ends up in this situation has another story that led to it. And then what I recommend um, or my suggestion for anyone who is in this journey or you know, in this space, in this community, is to remember that you have power. It's so easy to feel like you don't have any power. And that's what, this is what the system is sort of designed to make you feel like that way, right? That's going back to the last dignity. So I always encourage people to remember what their source of power is. It can be really small. It can be I have the power of my voice, and that's actually not small, but you do have the power of your voice. That's the thing that no one can take away from you. Um, But in addition to that, you have the power to do and access information about your situation. You also have the power to find a team of people, Um, you know, whether they're, they're, they're friends are supporting you, whether there are actual resources and that are out there, you have some power. So find and try to remember what that power is and ignite that, which will help you move forward. That's that's like the place that you start from. Starting from anywhere else can feel very defeating. Yeah, you that's always have to operate from a position of power. Yeah. That is very true. Martine, thank you so much for all the work you do, for sharing your story, for inspiring others to fight for their rights. Really appreciate you taking the time to join the podcast. Thank you. And I, I will encourage everyone to, if you want to learn more about the work that I do and access my tool, like resources that I have, go to illegalamongus.com. I will link it in the podcast. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me stop the recording. I have a quick question for you, if you have a minute. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to send you. I would love to meet you. Um, 